there's a lot of very strong emotions that I think a lot of us have felt our communities are feeling uh, that are including sadness and anger and disappointment and resentment. And I think there's a real danger right now that we could fall into despondency. It's, it's a time when we have to choose hope rather than allow ourselves to collapse into despair. And the more you know about American history, the more you know about race relations, the easier it is to fall into despair. I think there are signs of hope. Um, I think the fact that people of all races are out protesting is a sign of hope. I think it's a generational surge right now. Um, the last one I went to over in my own neighborhood in West Roxbury in Boston, Massachusetts, um, most of the people protesting were 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds. Most were women. And um, I was really inspired by them, to be honest. And there was a cranky guy next to me who said, why don't these kids go have fun instead of doing this? And I said, well, because they care about the country and they care about this justice and they care about fairness. And he says, well, if they want to be fair, they should stop throwing rocks. And I said, well, they're not throwing rocks. They're just holding up plaques saying Black Lives Matter. And he said, well, they should all be arrested. And it was a strange, it was a strange rea reaction to something I, that, I, that I find is important giving me hope that people care. And um, I think this could be a watershed moment in our country. What, what I want to talk about, though, is a little bit more personal. Karen Elizabeth and I were talking about the fact that right now there's a lot of judging going on. There's a lot of judgmentalism. There's a lot of hurt feelings. And I know my kids have all told me they've been at, at gatherings, um, socially distanced gatherings, and they have, sometimes they've left. Uh, the parties ended when someone burst in tears and left and someone else screamed and there was accusations and insinuations and hurt feelings. I know families are having trouble talking, um, that there's a lot of misunderstanding and hurt feelings going on there. And so I want to start with the story, end with the story. Um, the story I want to start with is recollecting a time when a student told me, well before any of this was happening, this was years ago, but she told me something that was kind of counterintuitive, that, but made sense as she explained it. She said that in her high school time, her dad had cancer, and everyone was worried. Um, he went through chemo and radiation, and it was a terrible couple of years, uh, but he came through and went into remission. And when she came to BC, see, everybody was relieved that he wasn't going to die, not soon anyway, because he's in remission, and the doctor was giving him a clear bill of health. But after her sophomore year at BC, she came home and her parents announced they were going to get a divorce. And she said in this really weird way, the divorce that they went through for two years was more painful and scarier than the cancer treatment that he went for through for two, two years. And she said it was because the cause of the cancer was anonymous, wasn't moral, wasn't personal, um, and that it bound them together. But then after the crisis was, was removed, then the tensions in the marriage surfaced and they didn't have a way to resolve them. And then they went up getting a divorce. And, and the worry um, continued after the divorce about how the family would do, how people would hang together. Well, there were some of the relationships be so damaged, they won't be able to be recovered. So then I thought, is, can we say there's an analogy between, initially I thought there might be, between COVID-19 to American society 
uh, where the relationship is COVID-19 to all of the racial anxiety, animosity, upset we now feel. Is that a parallel to the divorce and to the cancers to divorce as the COVID-19 is to our, our the upset about racial injustice? I think it's not because the inequities and injustice and unfairness also became apparent during COVID-19 and before George, George Floyd was killed. It's there all along. And in fact, both of these incidents have revealed to us the depth and the scope of racial injustice in the United States. It's not just police brutality, it's the healthcare system, it's education, it's neighborhoods, it's pervasive. That is, racial injustice is pervasive. The question is, what do all these protests mean? What does the anger mean? I think the anger means people care. How do we bring that into our relationships? What sometimes happens in families and in friends groups is that people care so passionately that if their friends don't agree with them, or if their friends give a signal that they may have a question to raise, the judgments come on heavy. And so people feel defensive, they feel attacked, they feel misunderstood, and then they push away the critical questions that their friends want to ask. So I think what I want to talk about a little bit tonight, have you think about, is how do we deal with the lack of harmony we have in our own lives and in our own families? It's not just diversity. It's not just pluralism of views. There are sometimes really deep moral disagreements within families. There are moral disagreements that go to the core of who we feel we are as human beings. So it's not, is, do you like the Yankees or the Red Sox? This is about what do you want American society to look like? What should the church be? What should our neighborhoods look like? And what can we do about it? So the problem I want to talk about is the difference between judgmentalism and judgments. Judgmentalism is when somebody comes on heavy and condemns us, or we condemn others. A lot of people have a litmus test. If someone thinks X, I can't be their friend. If someone says Y, I can't tolerate them. They cannot be in my life. And one student who I respect enormously recently said to me, I just can't tolerate anyone who don't, doesn't accept gay marriage. And I wanted to just listen and hear where she's coming from and understand her perspective, because she's always thoughtful. But I know gay people that don't believe in gay marriage, not for the reasons the right wing doesn't believe in gay marriage, but for other reasons. And I think the thing I worried about is if you have a litmus test, as soon as someone fails the litmus test, you stop listening. You shut down. And that's when the judgment comes in. So I want to call that judgmentalism. And today you might hear someone say, well, if you don't want to defund the police, you must be a racist. Or if you're not in favor of affirmative action, you must be a racist. They might not say that to your face, but that's the worry that you might have if you tell them, what you think, or if you ask, if you have to ask a question, it's especially a problem when we do this on university campuses, because the, and or among people that are educated, because we're supposed to learn how to be more open-minded. We're supposed to be intellectually flexible. That's part of liberal arts education. Is it frees you from your prejudices, right? So I think I think we have to look at what are the implicit litmus tests I have. What are my hot button issues? 
because usually they're a sign of our own prejudices, our own fears, our own passion. And passion's good, but it can also be destructive if it's not reasonable. So the word judgment means you've decided something is the case. And judgment is the result of a process of gathering data, understanding the data, having a hypothesis, and then having the data confirm the hypothesis or disconfirm the hypothesis. The judgment is that point of view where you say, I think I have sufficient evidence to think this is the case. The judgment comes as a process, as the result of a process of understanding. And the problem of judgmentalism is it doesn't let us go through the process of understanding. And I think instead of drawing lines in our families and among our friend groups, it would be really helpful if we can say the primary attitude I want to have is to listen, to understand, to see where someone else is coming from. Most of the time, when people get angry, there's a worry or a fear they have underlying that anger. Something they care about is being threatened. And I think a lot of times, if we can get at what is the good value they have that they feel is threatened, we will agree on the good value. We will agree about the need for security or the need for law and order. Those are values. But then to understand and to be able to talk about what law and order really means, what's a just law, what's properly just order, rather than controlled by a brutal police force, that's not law and order. That's just repression. So I think there are three things we need to do if we're going to get through that process of coming to a good judgment. And that is, first of all, we have to desire to understand someone who thinks differently than we do. And that means we have to respect them. We have to respect the parent who drives us nuts because his politics is so far out of whack with what you think is reality. You love him, but he's, as soon as he starts in politics, it drives you not up the wall. But try to get beyond the what drives you up the wall and find out what are the things he most cares about. And I bet you, you would also care about those things, but you'd want to go about them in a different way. So that first thing is desiring to understand and being open. The second point is being empathic. Try to see things from that person's perspective rather than from your litmus test, your own passion, what you're most upset about. Try to put that aside. And so this notion of empathy means you, in a way, have to transcend your own strong feelings of the moment and not look at how, how would I look at things from that perspective, but how does this person look at things from that perspective? And I think that's a really hard thing to do. I've been married for 40 years, and it's still hard for me to think, how does my wife feel about this? How does she think about this? I, have a, I can pretty, make some pretty good guesses at this point, although I'm a really slow learner on that score. But it's hard to do it. And if it's hard to do it for somebody you've been married for 40 years with, how much harder to do it with somebody that you work with that you don't know that well? Or somebody from a different generation? Somebody says, very different life experiences than you have. So the empathy is kind of underrated, and we hear, we hear a lot about it, but it's very difficult to do. And the third thing is communication. How do we learn first to listen and understand, to see the good values there? And then how, do we be, how are we able to communicate what our core values are? Because if we can get to that deep level, I think most of the people we disagree with or who disagree with us would agree with us on the basic level, that we care about our neighbor. We care about our family. We care about human dignity. 
We care about democracy. We care about respect for human beings. So if we can at least establish you know, our common humanity, that gives us a basis for continuing the conversation. So I think those three things are necessary for to coming to a good judgment about what someone's saying. Then we have a further question. Suppose we judge that their, their position on this is wrong, but we can still respect them as human beings. The question is, how can we advance our understanding of each other? Sometimes you could understand somebody and just say, we're not gonna agree, but I know where you're coming from. That's progress. It's a lot better than going to a party and telling people to F off and leave. But you have to be willing to take the time and be patient with that. So the last thing I wanna, I wanna end, because I'm, I'm respecting the time here, I want to end with a story that you might know about, you might not know about. Everybody knows Colin Kaepernick was with the 49ers, the quarterback, famous for taking a knee. He became a flashpoint for a one battle in the war of, of, over racial misunderstanding and injustice. Kaepernick took a knee after initially he decided, because of police brutality, to sit on the bench uh, during the 49ers game. And he was contacted by a guy named Nate Boyer, who was a Green Beret soldier, served in Africa, for a while was homeless, had a, had a hard time, had a lot of friends that were wounded, good friend that was a paraplegic from combat. He wrote to Kaepernick and said, I really don't agree with what you're doing. It's insulting. And I just want you to know I object and, you're, and what you're doing is disrespectful. Well, Ka Kaepernick got the letter and instead of throwing it away, or mocking him, he got in touch with Nate Boyer and wanted to sit down and talk to him to understand what happened, what motivated him to write to him. And is there a way, he, Colin Kaepernick, could express his prophetic denunciation of police brutality that would also be respectful? And so Nate Boyer suggested kneeling down. And you think about it, kneeling is actually a sign of reverence. In a religious service, you kneel at the moment in which the greatest reverence is to be shown, and you stand at the less reverent times. So Kaepernick thought what he was doing was meeting the objection, understanding the reason for the objection, and then compromising and finding a better way to explain the cause he was trying to communicate. I think Kaepernick is a good example for all of us. He stuck by his principles. He believed strongly in justice for uh, people of color, especially with regard to police treatment of them. He lost his job because of, of his willingness to protest. So I think he's a person of enormous integrity. Uh, maybe he doesn't say everything the way I would say that or other people would say it, uh, but I think there's a lot to learn from Colin Kaepernick in his attempt to understand, to communicate, to show empathy, to respect the person he doesn't agree with. And it wound up being uh, the formation of a friend rather than a fight. And I think that's something we could all learn in families. We have different flashpoints and different tensions and, and uh, some more than others. But I think, I think that's something to learn from. So that's what I kind of wanted to share with you today. And I look forward, if you have some questions or comments, we can kind of pull those together a bit and see where we, where, we, where we can learn here. Now, I know I have a lot of smart people in this room who have, would have a lot of questions. I'll ask a question here. Hi, Professor Pope. Thanks for your time. Hey, Matt. Thanks for taking the time and thanks everyone for getting this going. I'm curious what your thoughts would be on if you like had a magic wand and you could change one or two things about American politics today, what you think like an authentic Christianity would inject into American politics today? 
I think we need two things that are really lacking. We need truth and we need compassion. And in my view, truth and compassion are two sides of the same coin. And that's what Jesus was about. It was what Moses was about. It was what Muhammad was about. I think it's core to Buddha that our first obligation is to be truthful. And for me, that means we have to be humble because we're all flawed. In my opinion, every white person has a racist dimension. There are just the differences between people that admit it and people that don't or don't even, are not aware of it. And I think we need to be aware of our blind spots, our prejudices. We need to be aware of the fact that we don't know everything. We, we know very little and that and we have an obligation to find out the truth. Jesus says the truth will set you free. And if that's the case, there's so little truth. I think a lot of times we're enslaved. And what we're mostly enslaved with in this country is tribalism. We stick with our group. We stick with in our bubbles. And it can be a white bubble. It can be a Chestnut Hill bubble. It can be people that go to the country club bubble. But we're in the bubbles. And that's, that's going to block our ability to be truthful and to hear the truth. And we need to hear the truth about ourselves. Right now, the truth that we all need to hear is an uncomfortable truth, that we're beneficiaries of a racist system. We're not just that. I don't want to be reductive. But we need to face that truth, and we need to respond with love and compassion rather than with defensiveness. And what I hear a lot of people do is respond to that truth by denying it, and then to claim the high moral ground and condemn everybody who's trying to say, let's be honest. And I think we need to listen to people of color. That, to me, is our first obligation right now, to be truthful. And if we do, if we really try to understand, to be empathic, and to communicate, and we see things from their perspective, I think we cannot help but, dis but realize things have to change. And that's where the compassion comes in as well, not just in listening, but let's make society one in which every human being feels respected. Every person has an opportunity to thrive, and some don't thrive at the expense of others. So I think, I mean, that's, that's a very great generalization. Uh, but I think, I think our political system really is sick right now. And I don't, I'm hoping this is the crisis, the com combined crisis, that will make us really want to rethink things, not just about policing, but about the way we function as political beings. The biggest thing we need to do if we're going to combine truth and compassion is right now we have a politics of special interests, the tribal politics. People vote about what's good for me, for my people, for my group. And it wasn't that long ago when we had people saying, we're voting for the good of the country. We're, we're going to work for the good of everybody in the country. One of my political heroes is Robert F. Kennedy. Robert F. Kennedy was all about the common good. And his life was changed when he encountered and made himself hear the stories of poor people. And those poor people changed the way he thought about the country and realized that where the way he was raised as a, a very wealthy person with an elite education had obscured the truth from him. And it's the poor that brought him into the reality, into the truth, and let him see I'm living in an illusion. He's living in Plato's cave, um, if you remember perspectives. So how do we open ourselves so that people can move us out of the cave, out of our bubble? And that's why I think, I think trying to be hearing the truth that we don't like, that's uncomfortable, that makes us nervous, requires the virtue of courage. We need to have courage right now. The we white people, not that everybody here is white, but I think it's really a problem for white people to not get defensive and be hostile and dismiss people and say they're a bunch of radicals and socialists and all that stuff. It's just, that's not going to help us. Matt, how would you answer your question? I would 
throw an amen on what you said first. That's always a good policy. That's a good policy. Yeah, I think I tend to think more so like what, let's say, like my camp can do a little bit better. I think I come from a family of largely left-leaning people. And so I tend to be maybe more critical of my own party, let's say. And so what I see as the biggest issue on that side of the aisle, I guess, would be inability to see and like an inability to be humble enough to say like, I might have this issue wrong, or I might not be coming at this considering all the factors and things like that. So I think some humility, especially intellectual humility on both sides would go a long way. Mm -hmm. How about somebody else? Either comment on that question or... So we um, have two questions in the chat, actually. Oh, good. Okay. So this one you touched on a little bit, but they ask, what would you say to do if you try to listen and try to be with that person who has differing political views, but they prevent you from talking or sharing your opinion? Essentially, if your acts are not reciprocated by the other person you are listening to, what would you say is the best course of action? I'd say, I'd say keep it. I don't know the person, so it all depends. I mean, the fact is, I think this is a small minority of cases, but I think in some cases, you're just not going to get the communication that you'd like because some people are just very, very hardened. So I, I want to be realistic, and that's also part of being honest. But I have had, and I do have friends that I really have strong disagreements with, and I think you just keep the lines of communication open and realize the friendship and the love you have for each other the history you have, the values that you do have in common are more important than the disagreements. But I think you have to keep at it as best you can, but you have to be reasonable. There is a point where you realize I'm beating my head against the wall. That doesn't mean you get aggressive about it. I don't think that means you have to be hostile. Uh, but also, you know, sometimes all of us can be very um, hardened in our views such that we're not very receptive to questions that would call into question what we think. I think we all have a solidarity in being biased. We're not biased in the same degree about the same subjects. But Jesus makes this line, you know, uh, he makes the comment, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. And I think that applies to bias too. Um, Encountering somebody with a humility often will disarm them too. If you're humble and you really make it clear you want to understand and rather than judge and debate, if you really want to understand, most people like people who want to understand them and are willing to listen to them because they know they're being treated with respect. But sometimes it takes a while to get there. St. Francis, you know, in, his, in the prayer of St. Francis says this, let's strive, it's better to strive to, be un, to understand rather than to be understood. I think one of the things it takes for us to understand someone really different is to have an active imagination. That's part of empathy. To imagine a person is taking this really hard stand about something, um, often it might be about abortion or gay marriage, the culture war issues. And I've, I have found in very intense conversations about abortion, pro-choice versus pro-life, there actually is a lot more common ground than you would get if you just trade in slogans. Usually it gets to someone's life experience. And life experience is not something you refute, you just listen to, right? You hear the pain of what they've been through. And you realize in that situation, what they did or didn't do had its own integrity. And that makes you start to, I think, have a more compassionate ethic. Anyway, you could say a lot about that, but I think that's a great question. 
That one was from Tyler. This one is from Shannon. She's wondering what your thoughts are on how social media plays a role in fulfilling the three parts that you talked about. Do you think social media has been doing a good job in the past few years? Well, that is kind of an easy question <laughs> in a way, because what you see in a lot of social media is public shaming, public blaming, bullying, denouncing, and canceling, right? I don't think any of that really helps understanding. Add that to the short attention span that social media seems to encourage. I would say it's not a good venue for dialogue. I don't want to just condemn it outright. There's a lot of things we learn from social media. I don't think it should be your primary way of getting information about the world. And I don't think it should be something you go to as a way of avoiding people. One of the big problems with social media, of course, is that, that we gravitate to sources that we like and we ignore sources that we don't like. That's intellectually deadly as well as morally deadly. Uh, so it's important really to respect and to, to value friends that think differently than you do who tell you to read things different than you would read normally. Uh, one of my dearest, closest friends is very conservative. He's also smarter than I am. So it's a nice combination because he's always getting me to read things I wouldn't otherwise have read. And I don't always agree, but I'm always grateful because it's keeping me honest. And it makes me qualify my generalizations and my judgments. And it makes me accountable to something outside my silo. And that's what, we, that's what I worry about with social media. Um, I, I know of people that talk about being defriended because they posted something that the other person took objection to. And if you're sitting at a table drinking coffee and you talk, you've got an hour to talk, you can work through misunderstandings. You use, I think 90% of your communication is nonverbal. They can see you're not saying something aggressively. You're saying something because you're not sure. You want to know more. You wonder. And all that gets taken away in social communication on electronic media. So I think we have to be really careful. And I think we have to cultivate personal relationships, interpersonal. It's hard to do it. You're resuming. But it's, it's important to do the face-to-face -face as much as we can and give ourselves the time. The other thing is time pressure militates against really understanding people. You guys have all been educated to get to the bottom line. You want to, what does it all boil down to? What's the sparks note on life? And relationships are not like that. I think most of the time we understand people, it's after we've wasted a huge amount of time with them. <laughs> we've hung out with them and we've seen them in their best times and their worst times. Uh, we've seen them in their most noble and their, in their most ignoble. And when you know someone's story, and you know what they really love, then you can begin to put their comments in a context. If you have comments on a, on a web page, on a Facebook little blurb or a, a tweet, you're not getting the story, you're not getting the context, you're just getting the statement, and you can read into that any kind of fear that you have or any kind of moral objection or moral suspicion you have. And so, I mean, it's, it seems to me that social media is just more likely pouring fire pouring gasoline on a fire than helping us really come to greater understanding, empathy, and communication. It's really good at some things. I don't want to, I'm not a, a, a troglodyte. I'm not against all technology, but I think we have to be educated in how we use it. Um, and certainly don't allow your relationships with people to be determined by how they respond to you or what they post uh, on Facebook or something like that. That's, and it does happen. I know it happens. And it's a shame. Shannon, what do you think about that? Thank you. 
I, I agree with you. Uh, it's been, it's been a, a lot the past couple, it's always been a lot the past since it started, but the past couple weeks, just seeing people, what they post, but then what they, like you said, like the defriending things and it can happen just like that. And it changes a whole relationship, which is, it's, it's very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, like you said, the short attention span, we've just become so accustomed to just scrolling. So I, I hope that our generation and someday soon we can get back to having more of those conversations, um, mm-hmm. even just like around the dinner table. Sometimes even at the dinner table, you're all on social media, like you're just like right. not even there, which is awful. Yeah. Uh, but thank you. I appreciate it. You know, uh, one of my heroes is St. Augustine. And then St. Augustine says, you only really know the people that you love. Therefore, you can really only judge what they're saying as a statement about them, if you know who they are. Now, you could, you could make a judgment about the statement, that statement's incorrect, but we jump from the statement's incorrect to their bad people. And that's what I worry about. That's the judgmentalism rather than making a judgment. And really it becomes whose group are you in? Are you on my side or are you on their side? And life gets reduced to two groups. Well, of course, life is not like that. We're parts of lots of groups and the groups don't have to have hardened boundaries. They could have porous boundaries, right? That's why in, in the Christian and Jewish and Islamic traditions, there's a major value which we, we're losing, and it's hospitality. And what hospitality says is, yes, we have a community, we have a group, and you're welcome into this group. So churches are supposed to be places of hospitality for all people. Mosques are also places for hospitality. You see, Muslims worship, they all worship in a line. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, white or black, you're all praying the same exact way. Because in front of Allah, you're all human beings. And it's supposed to be the same way with Eucharist. And we lose that easily when we lose the personal contact. But thanks, Shannon. So we'll take these last two questions from Justin and then Alex. So Justin typed in the chat, Brian Stevenson has said that because of the racial narrative we've yet to really reckon with, we aren't free. Do you agree with this? And what would you suggest at a social level to work towards this understanding? I absolutely agree with that. How we work to that on a social level depends upon who we are. I think we all need to hear the stories of people that are really different from us. You have some choice over this. Everyone here is a young person. You can decide how you're going to spend your time. You have to work, but a lot of life is not work. And you, when you pick your friends, you're picking how, in a way, you're picking the, 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 the domain of your thinking. When you pick your friends, you're picking who you want to be in a lot of ways. So be careful about that. I know in my life, I'll just speak autobiographically, in my life, the two big things I've done to expose myself to people that are really different and will challenge me have been to work for the Catholic Chaplain's Office, volunteer for the Catholic Chaplain's Office in Norfolk, Massachusetts for the last 11 years. And I've made good friends there. Some are in prison still, some are out, and I still am am in touch with them. And they've enhanced my life enormously and constantly challenging me, not by saying, you know what you should be thinking? It's, here's my life story. What do you think of that? It's like, wow. All the stereotypes I had about men in prison are gone and about how people wind up in prison and what they do in prison, what they do when they get out of prison. They're all gone. The second thing is working and volunteering off and on with Jesuit Refugee Service. 
and I've been to uh, Africa eight times, not all with JRS, but a significant number of those with JRS, and meeting refugees and hearing what they've gone through uh, really relativizes being an American and also highlights the incredible power and wealth we have as a country. And we have a lot of answering to do for what our country's done overseas. Um, that's also been hugely expansive for me. But also the friends I have, I don't deserve, but they're really amazingly good people and the family I have. So the relationships in my life are what help keep me out of, reduce the extent to which I'm going down my own, my own bubbles. I don't know if that really answered the question, but it seemed like it would have. Justin, what do you, did I get yeah, what you were trying to get at? Yeah, you did. I, I wanted to ask. I, mean, I, um, I think you had that, you've had that experience on the reservation. Yeah, absolutely. The power it of dislocates listening. dislocates you, right? It dislocates, it reorganizes your life. You, you learn new stories. Life is different. Yeah, absolutely. When I was there, they, one of the guys said, you know, you only know what America tells you. And I think that phrase has stuck with me so powerfully. I just wanted to ask, would you support or suggest something like uh, a truth commission or reparations in this country? Or do you think we're ready for that? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I think we should. I don't really have any doubt about it. We need a reckoning. And one of the things I love about Brian Stevenson, he's calling us to, to reckoning about lynching and about mass incarceration with Michelle Alexander. And but I think, I think we need to take a serious look at the legacy of slavery and the, its impact uh, on African-Americans. It has to be done the right way. But we need the truth. Again, going back, we're never going to have compassion unless we have truth. And we're never going to look at each other as equal citizens until we really have a reckoning. And I think white people have to get over the idea that we're just, we're just going to wallow in guilt. It's not about guilt. It's about the causes of institutional racism, seeing the legacy of institutional racism so that we can really get at the institutions. And unfortunately, the phrase institutional racism sounds to many people like everybody running the institutions racist personally. And that's not the point. The point is that society is set up to the advantage of white people and to the disadvantage of people of color. And we've been doing it since the founding, since before the founding of the country. And, and, I, and I think that if we're going to really build a fair country, we have to have an honest history. And that's part of being honest on our history and not teaching history in a way that's self-serving and immunizing us from needing to be more responsible as a country. What do you think about that, Justin? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I wonder if we're ready for that in terms of, um, but I, I, I think the, the beauty of what the demonstrations are doing now is, is forcing a conversation and making it, you can't, you can't avoid it. And I think that's the power of what they're doing. Um, yeah. And I definitely agree with you in terms the of preparations. Is, we're ready for it when we want to be ready for it. Right. We're never going to be ready for it if we don't want to be ready for it. If we can have a 14-year war in Afghanistan to the tune of over a billion dollars and thousands of dead, million, hundreds of thousands of dead in Iraq and Afghanistan, why can't we have a truth commission? We're ready for violence and war. How about ready for truth? It's about will. It's about what we want. And it's, I think it's about we need to face the truth. And it's painful and difficult and it could be expensive. And it won't, the money won't be the most expensive thing. It'll be in changing the way we think about ourselves. And a lot of people are afraid of change, I think. I'm afraid of change. 
You know, I am. We all are. It's a, it's a human instinct, especially when you get old and crotchety like me. But we need to change to be honest people, I think. And the church needs to change, too. You know, the church has, this is agape, so we'll talk about love. The church preaches a lot about love, but we don't always fight for love of people that are being oppressed and locked and locked out and lost out. Um, if you want to do some good reading in the next week, check out Brian Massingale. He's got a nice 50-minute talk. He gave, he gave in a parish in Sacred Heart Parish in Racine, Wisconsin, about June 7th in his response. He's an African-American Catholic priest who teaches theology at, at Fordham. I wanted to hire him at BC. We couldn't pull it off. <laughs> but he's a great guy. And just that one talk will blow your mind to hear his story about how he's been treated and how he's responding to the killing of African-American, unarmed African-Americans time and time and time again. And um, we got it. We've got to face it. And that stuff doesn't happen to white people, to my knowledge. I mean, take it the case of Tamir Rice, you know, about Tamir Rice, 12 years old, sitting on a swing in Cleveland with a toy gun. And a neighbor calls the cop and says, there's a black kid with a gun. The cops pull up and kill him. They shoot him dead within the seconds of when they got there. And we got it. we've got to deal with the problem or is this going to continue the way it is? It's going to continue to fester. And one way to do it is to say, let's have an honest reckoning. Let's, let's, let's say what happened. Now get us good history, puts it in a position to, for a good future. Bad history positions us to still repeat the same problems over and over. Think about a relationship. Think about a bad marriage. If they don't go to a counselor and work things out and be honest, they just repeat the same things over and over and hurt each other over and over for decades. Or else they get divorced. What's the point of that? I just want to make sure we get Alex in. She's our very last question. So we have maybe like a couple minutes to answer this. Um, but she wanted to unmute herself to ask. Sure. So here she is. Thank you. My question is, it's a little bit of a, well, there's a bonus question. By the way, hi, Alex. <laughs> hi. Thank you for this. I am curious how the spring 2020 semester has affected the way that you are thinking about the fall 2020 semester. What changes are you thinking about making as an educator? Yes, we can think about uh, both the pandemic and acknowledge that the pandemic will continue through the fall as well, um, but mostly interested in how you're thinking about responding and promoting anti-racism even more so in your classroom. The bonus is what, are you, what actions are you taking right now? I'm like honestly person. trying to take time to think about it. Um, I need to really consider some options because I do believe as an educator, you have to go with the energy the students have. And I think the students are going to come in September or late August with a lot of energy for the issue. So I teach Pulse. And um, we don't know if we're going to have a placement for the students, which is one complication. I think the whole Pulse faculty, have been on, we've been on a listserv going back and forth, sharing resources about possibilities. This is, you know, Pulse is their philosophy theology course. So I have a responsibility to get core issues done. But I do want to do it in the frame that you're, that you're talking about. Um, I'm also teaching Challenge of Justice in the fall, which is, you know, that's, this is the sweet spot for Challenge of Justice. So that'll be easy to do. But I do feel a responsibility to speak to the signs of the times. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an economist. I'm not an historian. So I, I want to bring the tools of philosophy and theology. I think they're considerable for asking about questions of 
what our social responsibility is. And I think it's going to be development of the themes we've been talking about today, about what does it really mean to love your neighbor in a historical context that we're in right now? Uh, how do we show respect? How does that affect our view of public policies? What kind of a community do we want to be? What kind of an inclusive community do we want to be? And I think we're realizing now we have to be more proactive about the recruitment of students to BC, recruitment of faculty, recruitment of administrators, and not just say everybody's welcome to apply and we'll give a preference for people of color. I think they have to be more aggressive. And I think Father Leahy's statement, I didn't study it carefully, but one came out today indicating that he's taken this seriously, which I was really happy about. I know there are a lot of good people at BC I can learn from about pedagogy and and I'm always trying to understand the students. Students change every few years, you know. Their experience changes. Their background changes. The, the last thing I'd say about that is I view my role in the classroom more as a person who helps students learn from each other and from the books rather than from me giving them my truth. Um, I've taught about half of you in here. And you know that I, I, I think you'll learn a lot from asking questions and answer and getting answers from each other and then putting those answers and questions in the context of a great thinker like an Augustine or Aquinas or a Luther, a Calvin or contemporary authors. Martin Luther King Jr. I use in almost every class, Malcolm X. So um, I am always excited to teach. Someone asked me recently, you know, I just turned 65 in May. Someone asked, are you thinking about retirement? And actually, no. Because what I'm doing in the classroom, I get more excitement from the students than anything I would do on a golf course or in my backyard here in West Roxbury. So I, I intend to go out with my boots on and because I just love, I love learning from the students. So it's, it's um, Alex, in response to your question, it's not that I have stuff I'm going to give them to change them. It's that we have to have a learning environment where people feel free to really talk. And the hard thing is, to make it make everyone feel free that they can ask any questions they want to ask and they're not going to be judged. We're going back to the issue Karen brought up. How do we have a classroom where people aren't judged? How do we have a classroom that avoids groupthink? 